create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. What do you consider expensive? What's the upper limit that you'll spend for something? I mean your absolute upper limit. Whatever your answer is, is just a story. If that infuriates you, well, that's because of another story that you've made important. The truth is that when you expand your notion of what's expensive, you open the door to attracting more money into your life. Hey, hello, storytellers, and welcome to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. We're fortunate that our host, Audible, is enriching lives. They are offering you, our storytellers, a free audiobook download of your choice, plus a one-month free trial of all of Audible service, and you get to choose from more than 180,000 titles. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and take advantage of this wonderful gift. Remember that this show is enriched by our dialogue with you. So keep your comments and inspired thoughts coming. Send them to Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at changeyourstorypodcast.com. Today's guest is a man who changed his story around his own value and what's expensive. He began his web design business when he was in high school. He used to build $300 websites. Now he builds $30,000 websites. He manages six-figure digital advertising budgets for some of the largest manufacturing and construction companies. He also advises and mentors other freelance web designers and digital agency owners on how to develop and scale their businesses. Get ready to expand your mind with today's exciting guest, Joe Kashurba. Welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Hey, Lewis. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, man. Did I pronounce your name correctly? It's Kashurba? Yep. You did a good job. I'm now, I'm always curious about heritage. What, what heritage is Kashurba? It's Ukrainian. Okay. Has anybody ever mistaken it for Italian? I don't know that they have. I, I actually, it's interesting because I'm, I'm part Italian also, but I don't know anybody has ever thought the last name was Italian. And uh, what part of you is Italian? I'm a quarter, Uta- a quarter Italian and then also another, and then a quarter Ukrainian. Okay, cool. I'm uh, Italian through and through. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. my friend. So I want to know, first off, did you have a childhood dream of what you wanted to be when you grew up? I did. Um, I always was interested in entrepreneurship. And so my childhood dream when I was little, I wanted to own a cheese factory. Oh, my God. You got to tell us more. Like, why? First of all, how did you as a kid get interested in entrepreneurship? 
And secondly, why a cheese factory? I think I was just one of those, uh, you know, one of those uh, kids that always just thought that I could do anything. And so the idea that I couldn't, you know, start my own business or do my own thing was was just not a thought that was in my mind. Um, but in terms of Cheese Factory, I love cheese. But my mom at that point was worried about like wanting wanting to buy things that were fat free and low fat and she would buy this fat-free cheese that was terrible, these, these fat-free cheese singles that were terrible. And so specifically, my plan was to start a good-tasting, fat-free cheese factory. <laughs> I love that. How old were you? I think it was, it was third grade. Um, so however, however old I was when I was in third grade, because I remember the teacher would do, do something where each week a student would – sort of tell their story, their sort of life story, and she'd write it on this big piece of paper, and it included what you wanted to be when you grew up. And so I remember telling her that I wanted to own a good, good-tasting, fat-free cheese factory, and so that's what she put on my big piece of paper for the, the one time it was my week to tell my story. That's great. Now, did you get this impulse to be an entrepreneur from, from your parents? Were they the influence on you? Definitely, that was definitely a part of it. Um, you know, both my parents have have owned have owned businesses at different times and and that kind of thing. So there was definitely was entrepreneurship in the family. Now, were you always attracted to web design and the internet? I was always attracted to computers, but um, I actually didn't start my business with the idea that it was going to be a web design business. I, um, I I started the business as a video production business. In high school, after a group of friends of mine had a band, and my first sort of real entrepreneurial thing was I filmed them, uh, their band playing at this restaurant, and sold videotapes of them playing to their parents. Wow. And now, it, was a, it was a good captive audience. So what kind of equipment did you use for that? That was like, I think I had like a, these two Panasonic sort of hand video cameras with... Um, I think it was mini v mini dv tapes i think at the time in there and i actually remember actually recording those i had some kind of video editing software but i actually had to in real time i connected a television with a vcr up to the computer with like um with the three yellow uh red and white cables and yeah, actually recorded yeah. onto the videotapes one at a time in real time and then you know to sell them to their parents and you figured all that out yourself? Yep, I, I figured it all out. I think I was charging $20 for the videotapes. And uh, and I also made t-shirts. I would buy these the the iron-on things. And so I made a band logo. And I was, was uh, ironing on these t-shirts and selling these t-shirts to their parents also. And how old were you then? That was, um, I think I was 15, maybe 14 or 15. That's fantastic. It's wonderful. You know, when you said to me, well, you know, it didn't really start out as a web design business. Uh, it basically, it grew out of uh, something that was fun with your friends. And I suddenly thought of Mark Zuckerberg. You know, I mean, <laughs> Facebook wasn't started to become what it is today, right? Yep. Very interesting. And so I guess you kind of answered, say, what was the fascin? Well, what was the fascination for you eventually to do web design? Well, yeah, I, I was always interested in programming. 
Um, and and so sort of how this all came together then was my sister, who my younger sister bought me for Christmas around that time, a dummy's guide to programming. And just because I was interested in programming. And so one of the chapters in that book was about HTML and, and building websites. And so when I when I was doing these 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 videos and stuff, I had this idea I should start a video production business and see if anybody else wanted me to do video for them. And so I went to this dummies guide that my sister had got me to learn about HTML so that I could build a website for this video production business that I was trying to start. And you know what happened was then I didn't really get any video production clients, but people saw that I could build knew how to build websites. And so people started asking me for websites, and that's sort of how it all sort of came together and tur turned eventually into a, a web design business. Mm. I love it when you hear these things, you know, how success, when you look back, is a series of discoveries. It's all, and often it's discoveries that were unexpected, right? Absolutely. And it becomes an adventure. I mean, that, that's what's so wonderful about it. So looking back... Were there any childhood adversities that have actually contributed to your current success? Childhood adversities? I don't know about childhood ones. I think luckily I somehow made it through childhood with still that that idea that I could do anything and that uh, you know I wasn't wasn't limited or nothing was was impossible. And so uh, I somehow luckily made it out of childhood that way. I think the adversities probably started after. After high school and into college, when when I started really trying to make entrepreneurship happen, and uh, had had plenty of failures along the way there. And I'm sure we'll touch on some of them as we continue to discuss this. And uh, can you kind of take us through the steps of developing the business while you were in high school? You've started with some of the foundation steps, but how did that begin to escalate? Well, yeah, it was it was the kind of thing where. You know, people just sort of, I started getting a few clients and, you know, you talk about, you know, you, you mentioned discovery and I think uh, somebody, what, what was the quote one time that I heard? Um, it was from Eben Pagan, I think it was, that, that you have to be smart enough to know you're getting lucky. And I, I was smart enough to see that while there was something, he, something here with these with these websites and that I should sort of pivot from the video production to, to really trying to, to turn this into something. Um, and so I really started, you know, going about doing all the things to turn that into a real business, you know, building out the website for that and getting a, a real business name and uh, figuring out what I was going to charge. Cause at first it was just charging sort of hourly and really had no idea what to charge. And so I it was sort of that, that process of, of realizing something was there and then getting serious about it. What was your um, your first business name when you when you launched? The original name of the business was Joseph Kasherba Multimedia. Cool, cool. And and I was and and I, I was was under the impression that I didn't need you know if I put Joseph Kasherba in the name I didn't need to register it any register it or anything, and that was actually I I. I I'm only 90% sure this is accurate, but this was before um, some of the regulations had changed, um, sort of anti-terrorism kind of regulations, where at that point in time you could go to the bank and register 
uh, a bank account under a name um, without fish, uh, without official documentation from the, the state or anything like that about having a um, a business in that name. So um, as long as you had part of your name in it. So that's why I went, did it that way. Uh-huh. And what did the name eventually become? Like, what's the name today? It eventually became Kashirba Web Design Group. Okay. So who was some of that multi? Oh, no, sorry, it had that multimedia in there because it was originally the video production kind right, of thing. Right, right. So, who were your very first clients for websites? My first two, my first two clients ever were an an, an attorney that uh, my mom met on a plane. She, she was on a plane and met somebody who, who had a law firm and was needing for needing a website, and he was nice enough to sort of give me a chance, and that was one of the, the first websites I ever did. And then the other, the other one was the photographer that did my senior photos was, was I think, my second client. Um, and basically, he called up the school looking for a student to do a website for him, and he was referred to me by one of the teachers, and so I did a website for him, and he did my senior photos, and uh, I think he paid me $300. And did the lawyer also pay you $300? The lawyer actually was less than that. They, that, was, that was only, I think that, that website was $150. So when did it begin to escalate? I mean, it's a really serious money. So the, the first time when, it, when I had the realization that I could charge a lot more was later on in, in college. And that was, again, a, a discovery. It was a sort of a by accident thing where I, I, it was finals week and I was too busy. I actually didn't have time to take on this project. And so I just came up with a price that was crazy to me at that time, which was $1,800. And just because I didn't have time for the project and this company ended up buying and so this was you know, multiple times what I'd ever charged before, and they, they bought and had no problem with it. So I realized, wow, there's a lot lot of opportunity here. I could charge a lot more than I am. And that's when I went, went about deliberately increasing my prices. So that was when I first saw that opportunity. And then over the next few years, it was a, a process of increasing my prices and then getting more and more clear about what my specialty was and who were the clients that I could help the most with and, and that kind of thing. You know, there's a couple of things I really, really love about what you just said, and uh, I want people to pay attention to this. The first one, you basically did it because you were hoping that they would say no. Yeah, exactly. And so there is a lesson in that, that when we're too attached to the outcome and we're needy, we often don't get what we want. But if you have the posture that says, you know what? I'm good at this, but I don't really need it. You may be surprised and find out that you get more than you wanted. That's fantastic. Absolutely. That's really wonderful. So take us through a few more steps. 1,800. I mean, it's a, still quite a distance from 30,000 for one site. So what were the steps to, those, to that figure? Yeah, so, so that was in high school. And basically what, you know, what happened next was that I was in I was in high I was in college and I was doing this web design on the side, but I had this other startup company in college that was I had this idea that the startup company was going to be my main thing after college, 
And the startup company fell apart sort of during finals week and graduation and everything. So I graduated with no job lined up and just this, this web design that I was doing on the side. And so that was when I had to, I moved back in with my parents and I had to really make the web design business work. And it was the kind of thing where it was making, it was making nice money for college, but not, not, not that much money for the real world. And so you know, I was I, I set up this this office in my mom's sort of garage basement, and um, you know, got really serious about trying to build this business. And one of the key realizations I had was that I needed to start doing marketing. So I was at that point I was getting projects from referrals and this and that, but I wasn't doing much to actually go out and get business. And so I went about trying to figure out how I could actually do marketing and get. Uh, projects consistently and that was really what took things to the next level when I started realizing that um, I needed to be proactive about going out and getting business and as I started to do that I, I, I quickly got to the point where I had more business than I could handle um, and, and that I had some systems in place that I knew I could, could go out and I could get more business so that's when I could start experimenting more and more with the price. Um, again, like you said, because I didn't really need it. I wasn't desperate for those clients. And so it was just the kind of thing where every few months I would try, okay, well, what about you know that standard site that before I was charging 1800 for? What if I charged 3500 What if I charged 4000 What if I charged 6000 for it? And that kind of thing happened. Mm. And then the other thing, the, the other thing that was happening was I was getting – there were certain industries and niches that I was getting a lot of clients in, and then I would go, I would go as much as possible in that direction. I started getting all these industrial and manufacturing companies that had very unique situations, and I would go in there and, um, you know, sort of consult with them to figure out exactly what they would need, and that was the thing that um, got me to the point where I was charging thirty or. We've done projects, you know, over forty thousand dollars, where um, it was a manufacturing company with some very unique need, and I was the, you know, taking the time to consult with them and figure out exactly what they need and, and put together a um, a website that solved that very unique problem of theirs. I love it. What was the startup company that you said didn't work out for you in college? Yeah, it was it was a uh, build your own website software, uh, similar to Wix and Squarespace and different things like that, where you can build your own website. And you know the the idea was that rather than selling websites, people could go use this platform, pay a few dollars a month, and and do it themselves. Mm -hmm. It's kind of ironic because it was sort of the opposite of the direction I ended up going, which was you know charging higher prices and being more specialized as opposed to this direction, which was cheap website builder. I was only charging $9 a month for it and that kind of thing. However, I mean, if you had a model like that that worked, you could still make a fortune with it by scaling it, right? And having hundreds of thousands of people subscribe to it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, Wix and Squarespace and some of those ones these days are, are very successful. Um uh, the one of the mistakes that I made was I built the platform for myself and not for business owners. So mm. 
it was the kind of website builder that me as a web designer would love to use, but a business owner wouldn't know what to do with it. And, you know, I, I sort of made the mistake of not ever looking at it from the perspective of the business owner or, or talking to them about, you know, what they wanted and how they would look, you know, how they would look at it and what they, what, what would they need for it to be easy? Not what, what I would need. Which is the smart marketing question. And what did you do to learn about marketing? Because, you know, it's not obvious to people. I did lots of learning. Uh, I bought all kinds of books from Dan Kennedy and bought courses and um, sort of spent a long time learning and researching. And, and I almost spent too much time because it took me a while to actually get into the action-taking mode. Um, so I learned, and then I just tested. I, I, I did cold calling. I did direct mail. I did direct email. I did um, – I bought leads. I did Facebook ads. I did Google ads. I did magazine ads. I did newspaper. I did radio. I did everything you can conceive of, you know, just learn from, you know, in the – you know, out there doing it and trying it and seeing what works. That's wonderful. Besides Dan Kennedy, who is a powerful influence on a lot of people in the world of marketing, who would you say uh, taught you the most, you learned the most from? I would say Eben Pagan. Mm-hmm. He has some incredible courses and online programs about about marketing and and it was really a it was a video of his that that when I that sort of got me to first sort of start to put the pieces together because he's big into this idea of, you know, looking at it from the, the client or the customer's perspective and what are their needs and what are their um, pain points and everything. And that's when I realized that I had, that was the exact opposite of what I did with this startup company. I was looking from my perspective instead of from the, uh, the client or the customer's perspective. I love Edmund Pagan's stuff. Do you, uh, how much do you know about him? I, I, I'm, I, I, I've gone through a lot of his, uh, his original um, relationship stuff, as well as I, I think I've bought pretty much every program he's ever made. We might be, we both might be members of his, um, I, I bought into his, where he sold all of the courses at one shot. The, yes, yes, I, yeah, I think I have that also. I've got that, I've got that as well. Um, <laughs> it's funny, because this morning I was listening to him, you must be familiar with Joe Polish. Yep, absolutely. I was listening to his podcast this morning. Uh, I love marketing, and he was interviewing Eben Pagan's wife. Oh, okay, Annie. I've I've actually uh, I've I've talked to her and uh, did some consulting and stuff with her also. Fascinating woman. She's yeah. in, the, in the relationship niche, right, Annie Annie Lala. Yep. Yeah, fascinating. You're in good company with these people. Let me ask you, when you, what was it like the first time that you asked someone for, well, I'm going to give you this website, it's going to cost you 30000 What did it feel like and how did, what was, can you relive the experience for us? It was funny because, um, it's funny because it wasn't, I don't know how to describe it, it was not unusual, I guess is the answer. You know, it was, you know, we talked and, you know, we did some consultations and figured out what they needed. And the company was, 
you know, had a lot of expenses because some things that 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 were going on wrong with their their existing website, and so they were going to get much more value out out of it than the thirty thousand they were going to pay me, and so I sent the proposal just like anything else, and honestly, it was totally normal, and and I almost think that's part of it. Like, if you're charging a price that's that you're not comfortable with. And you're like scared to send over that proposal or ask for that price or something like that, then that's probably a problem. Um, and so, so the answer is it was actually pretty normal. Well, you said something really key about the fact that you, in your analysis and your consultations with them, determined that the value you were going to deliver would exceed what they would invest or spend. And if you always have that approach, you'll be able to command a very high price. It's not a figure you just pull out of the air. Say, let me see if they're suckers enough to go for it. No. You determine, can I give them $50,000 worth of value? So then they'll be happy to pay me 30000 for it. Exactly. You know, there was one one great example was I had I had a project that was just over $40,000 and it was for a manufacturing company that long story short they wanted to create an online product catalog so that they could stop printing physical product catalogs to send to all of the stores that sold their products and Basically, they were spending a million dollars a year on printing costs to send these these binders of their products out to all their comp- all their uh, the stores that sold their products. And so, so forty thousand dollars for a website sounds like a lot, but when you realize that they're going to save a million dollars a year in printing costs, it doesn't sound like anything at all. No, not at all. In fact, they should be. Ju- they're probably jumping up and down excitedly saying please take my money exactly it's like no, it's it's no uh it's no brainer mm-hmm. do you know what joe polish calls marketing how he defines it i off the top of my head i don't he defines marketing as storytelling hmm. i like and, that yeah and he defines selling as influence selling is influence marketing is storytelling I particularly love it because I'm a storyteller and I believe in the power of story. And yeah, I mean, he is so, so right on with that comment. Mm-hmm. Now, how did you develop the mindset to start mastering how to scale a business? Because scale, I think, is a concept that just eludes so many business people. They coast along at one level and they never really scale. Yeah, there was a lot. I mean, there's a lot there. There was the the mindset piece of being comfortable with other, you know, other people doing things. Um, you know, I was the I was the the you know, there, there's sort of a stereotype of entrepreneurs as being the the person that doesn't get good grades in school and you know, maybe C student and then hires a bunch of A students or something. But that was not me at all. I was the straight A student that every group project, I did the entire thing myself and I didn't talk to anybody else. And I was the total um, person that wanted to do everything. And and so it was a really big, big 
challenge, um, both mindset wise and as well as like tactical, how do I actually do this? Uh, in, in terms of bringing other people in in figure, figuring out how to get all the processes and everything that were in my head out and in, into software and into other people's minds. And it was a big, a big multiple year, uh, struggle. I'll bet you created a lot of anxiety for you too. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, that first time, that first time that, that somebody else is talking to a client besides you and, you know, it's some big project and you're, you're worried about losing the client or the project is a lot of anxiety. Um, and then the first time that you have a team member that you have to, you know, sort of let go, uh, cause it's not a good fit. That was a lot of anxiety for me, you know, especially being someone who, um, I, had a lot of really, um, avoidant of conflict kind of issues that I have to work on. So yeah, there was a lot of anxiety inducing moments. You know, this is great because I think all the entrepreneurs listening to this will be able to relate. I know that I have a big problem letting other people touch uh, and not only touch, but to be able to execute my ideas. And I know exactly what that feeling is. It's like, you know, you want to control it all. And part of you says, no one can do it as good as you, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and unless you let that go, you're not going to be able to, you know, uh, develop into um, a huge enterprise that's successful. And it's, um, it's quite a step. Yeah, it is. I mean, one, some uh, a, a client and also um, sort of business coach of mine uh, once told me that, that – um, unless you're comfortable with it being done only 80% as good as you can do it, then you can't hand it off. Wow. You know, wow. you have to get to that point where you're okay with 80%. Um, not necessarily that you're, that you can't get team members that are going to do better work than you and all that, but that you have to be sort of okay with that in order to, to, to let you, you know, let your grip off of it. Who was the coach? Do you know? Remember? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Eden. Eden Lovejoy is her name. Okay. And she's been a, a coach of mine as well as a client of mine, and uh, we've worked together in a variety of capacities for a long time. That's she's wonderful. She's been a huge, huge help. In, in, she was hugely helpful in that piece of, of helping me go from, you know, trying to do so many things to myself to opening it up and bringing other people in. And her and I worked together in detail, and she helped me bring project managers in that could manage projects. And Eden's fabulous. I can hear it in your voice, the excitement about, you know, and uh, <laughs> about what she offers. Uh, what would you say would be the biggest mistake you ever made? Biggest mistake that I ever made? Man, there's been so many. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think a big mistake was for a long time. I think a really big mistake all through all through college, you know, not just that one startup company, but I think I mentioned Eben's comment about uh, smart enough to know you're getting lucky. And in high school, I was, and I said, you know, there's something here with these websites, let's focus on that. And then I got to college, and I, I forgot about that, and I focused on um, – this startup company and I had all kinds of other little sort of endeavors and things that I tried all through college when the websites were working the whole time 
And so I think a biggest mistake was, you know, going that whole time without really putting my focus on the, the web design side of things. Because again, once I shifted my focus back to it, when that's, once that startup company failed, it grew again. And, and so I think that was a big mistake. And did it cost you? Yeah, I think it cost me cost me a ton because there was there were probably years where I could have already grown the, the the web design business to you know six figures or multiple six figures and it was still making a couple grand a month because I wasn't focusing on it. Mm-hmm. Mm. What would you say has been the biggest obstacle that you had to overcome to become to really accelerate your success? It was always myself and my mindset. You know, it just shocks me. You know, I, I keep seeing over and over again how your own mindset issues and limiting beliefs and all of that kind of stuff, your ability to be productive and perform, all that stuff is much more of the issue than the, the tactics and strategies and the, you know, the marketing, right? Like, or, you know, the business stuff. And, and I, it's... It's just incredible to see that, 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 that it's mo- more about fixing your own problems than it is about sort of business in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I get you. I'm, I'm in network marketing and we learn that same truth that the skills of network marketing can be taught to a person in less than a week. But it's the mindset that if that's not right, all the skills in the world are not going to matter. Yep. You know. And so and you go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say well, what and, and what I think is unfortunate or that you see or that I've done is that people don't realize that. So they go looking for all these other skills or they go from one business to another or one business model to another, all these different things trying to fix the problem via skills and and stuff when it's really themselves. Mhm. Absolutely. Wow. You sound like a student of personal development, are you? Do you invest in personal development study? Absolutely. I feel like that's my biggest expense. No, I, I'm, I'm, always, I'm, I'm always reading. I'm always buying, buying courses and programs and going to seminars and joining mastermind groups. I, I absolutely love that. I absolutely love all of that and, and love the, the results of having realizations and getting to the next level. So... Yeah, I'm obsessed with that. We're probably going to run into each other at one of these events because I'm on the same track as you are. <laughs> Who would you say is your favorite right now, the most influential of the thought leaders? So Eben's always, you know, always, always a big one. But I'm, I'm in um, Sam Ovens. Um, I don't know if you know him. I'm in his highest level mastermind group and just got back from a um, from a live event in Manhattan uh, with him. So. No, I never heard that name. I hope you're not in the oven. No, <laughs> yeah, Sam Ovens is fabulous. He's uh, he's got some really good mindset uh, mindset stuff as well as marketing stuff, and uh, sort of the 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 knowledge that I got from Eben and the knowledge I got from Sam combined together is sort of been it's been the the perfect synergy that I needed. Do you spell it O V E N or O V E N S? O V E N S. Okay, ovens. Okay, I'm gonna look them up. And uh, what about Peter Diamandis? That's not one I'm familiar with. You probably well, all of these guys are 
they're kind of in the same tribe. The Amandis right now just opened up a program you probably you probably would become addicted to. It's called Abundance Digital. Hmm. He has Abundance 360, which is a live event he does every year. And the people he's associated with are Joe Polish, Elon Musk, Richard Branson. Mm. He's part of the Genius Network with Joe. Yep. And um, his book is called Bold, How to Go Big, Create Wealth and Impact the World. And I think if you look at it, you'll probably go on another journey. That sounds good to me. Yes, indeed. Very, very exciting stuff. Cutting edge. Cool. I'll check it out. What are the biggest mistakes that people make when they're growing their online business? Yeah, so I think it's, it's some of the stuff we talked about. Um, you know, not you know, not thinking from the perspective of the client or the customer and thinking about what you, you know, creating the product that you want. And sort of related to that, I see people that they don't specialize and they don't um, create something of value. You know, especially I work with a lot of web designers and agency owners to help them grow their businesses. And I see, I see so many, you know, web designers that, that are, you know, sort of just se- sort of selling cheap websites to anybody that's willing to buy them rather than narrowing in on on a certain type kind of client becoming a specialist charging a premium price and that kind of thing so that 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 sort of competing on price and being a generalist thing is a big piece and then i think the second one is that is just not doing the marketing sort of hoping sort of hope marketing hoping that that some people are going to come or that you're just going to sort of magically grow your business instead of being proactive about going out and getting more business I like that. Hope marketing, which definitely doesn't work. That's good. What are the biggest... um, uh, I'm sorry, I've already asked that. What are the best strategies for a newbie to use to get new clients? I absolutely love just um, direct email, just direct cold email, um, where you find people who are a perfect fit for your product or your service. Um, And and comes back to that specialization piece. You have to you have to have a really clear picture of who your your ideal client or customer is, what you're helping them with, and have to have that really dialed in. And if you can, if you have that, then just reaching out to them and offering them to help, offering to help them via email, I think is a fabulous strategy. Um, and same thing goes on on LinkedIn. You can find people who are a good fit and re- connect with them, reach out to them on LinkedIn, and. And I think that's that whole piece is almost the test of 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 your offer and of your specialization. You know, if you if you can't just create a big list of people who are a great fit for your product or service, email them and get some of them to be interested, then you probably don't have your offer and your your specialization and all of that dialed in enough. Hello? Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. For a second, it almost seemed like you had disappeared. Hmm. It's okay. Just a second. No, I, I agree. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. That How do you go about determining or zeroing in on your target market? Yeah, so if, if you're somebody who has, if you're somebody who has, you know, maybe a freelance business or you already have some clients and customers, the exercise I always have people do is, 
list out your five or ten best clients or best customers, and then ask yourself, you know, why did you like working for them? Why did they choose you instead of somebody else? What did they want? You know, what were they really trying to accomplish? And then see what the similarity is. You know, if a web designer does that, they'll often see that their their best clients all come from a particular industry or have a particular uh, problem or something like that. So I think that's a great place to start if you have an existing business. If not, I I would start looking at what what problems have you solved for yourself or what areas um, what areas or industries or things like that do you know um, that you know maybe your you your 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 parents had a a restaurant and you you worked in restaurants for a long time and you know that they always have this one particular problem with their um, with their marketing and so then that's the 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 niche you go down for your for your business um, so so I always you know think people should look look at themselves look at their experience look at what they know um, and that kind of thing um, you know the thing you don't want to do is just say you know just come up with some random thing like you know, lawyers have a lot of money, so I'll sell websites to them because they have a lot of money. You're just picking some random thing and, you know, because you think it's going to be profitable. That's that's the thing you shouldn't do. I agree with that, too. And I think the top marketers would certainly all say that you should never begin with the money. You should begin with the vision of or the promise. What are you offering? And if that's something that legitimately excites you and, and excites other people, the money then will definitely follow. Yes, and I and I always tell people, you know, you, you know, there there's telling, you know, some maybe I'm talking to somebody and they're like uh, they're web designer and they're thinking, you know, should I do this specialization or target this industry or what? You know, what do you think I should do? And I always tell them, what's always ask them, what's the business that you actually want to build? Like, you know, any anything that you do, there's going to be challenges. You're going to have failures. You're going to have to, you know. <laughs> You know, every, any particular niche or industry is going to have difficulty. You know, what's the one that you're that you actually want to build, and you're going to be excited to push past those roadblocks and failures uh, when they are definitely going to come up. Hmm. Now, for important for entrepreneurs, especially, what's the best way to build and work with a virtual team? So, a person they know they've got something good, but again, now they need to start delegating and a virtual team, how do you go about building it and working with them? Yeah, so the the thing that's different with a virtual team as opposed to, you know, just hiring somebody who's going to sit next to you all day is that you need to be much, much more clear about what exactly they're doing, um, what, role they're, what role they have or what task they're um, responsible for what phase of the project they're responsible for, and 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 so what I see so often is that people will come to me and they'll say, well, I tried hiring a bunch of contractors or virtual team members and they were all bad and terrible. And how do you find good ones? That's what always people always ask me. And when that's happening, usually when I ask them some more questions, I realize that it's it's not the it's not the contractors, it's not the team members that, that are the problem. It was the business owner. And it was the business owner not giving these people a clear um, picture of what they were responsible for doing, what they want, you know, what they wanted, um, and that kind of thing. So um, 
what you really need to do is you need to look at your business. You, you need to start by take, looking at where are you spending your time, figure out where you're spending your time, then pick something that's you're spending a you know a bunch of hours on this particular task or this particular phase of the project or this particular thing, you, and you're either not good at it or you want to get it off your plate, and then you get you hire a contractor to take care of just that one particular piece, and you focus all of your attention on getting that one particular piece handled by somebody, and then you move on to another piece, and you go piece piece by piece like that. Now, where would you begin to look for, like, uh, say, okay, how do I choose virtual team? Well, it starts, well, I think it's, so it starts with that figuring out what that role is. And, and what I always tell people is that if you can find a vendor that can do it instead of an individual person, go with the vendor first. So a vendor being like a, like a company that actually does that service. So I'll give you an example. So when we build websites, we, we create the design in Photoshop and then we convert it into a, a theme, a WordPress theme. Um, and that one particular piece of taking that design and turning it into a WordPress theme, one of the first things I got was it was take, it was taking up a lot of my time and, you know, it was just sort of a very, um, uh, sort of repetitive kind of task. And so, I found a company that could do that where the whole company that was the only thing they did and they charged like 150 bucks to take that design and turn it into a WordPress theme. And so I just started using that company to do it. And that made it so much easier than if I had hired an actual contractor, an individual person, because, you know, that company already has a team. They already have lots of scalability and everything. So I always tell people, step one, if you can find a vendor to do it, Go with that vendor. Then, then if you can't do that, can you find somebody on a per-project basis that can do it, where you send them the task, they, they do it, and there's a per-project cost. And then only if you can't find somebody like that do you actually look to try to find somebody on an hourly basis. So if you go through that process, you end up sort of with the leanest, meanest possible for configuration. And so, um, you know, our team consists of... Some people that are hourly contractors, some people that are per project and get projects every once in a while, and then some vendors that just handle different things for us. And so you go from having this idea of a, of a team as being a bunch of employees to being this really unique team with, you know, with hourly people and per project contractors and vendors that do things and, and that kind of thing. That's the business of the future, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think absolutely. I think people need to start thinking a little bit more outside of the box, and um, you know, I think that's where we're going. Now, how do people compete with do-it-yourself website builders like Squarespace? I I think the the, the main thing is is that specialization piece. Um, who are the those very particular clients that you can help help get very specific results or solve very specific problems? Um, and it's sort of the difference between like um, there are different medical clinics that that are around that you can go and you can get a checkup or something. You know, if you're a generalist doctor, you're threatened by these little cheap clinics that are coming coming in. Well, if you're a specialist like a neurosurgeon. Um, you're not threatened by these little clinics, right? 
And that's the mentality you have to have. You have to be a specialist. So, mm-hmm. you know, when I'm going into this manufacturing company and we're figuring out how we can digitize all this stuff and do a $40,000 online product catalog, they're not thinking about using Wix and paying $20 a month instead, right? They're mm-hmm. not, they're, 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 they're hiring me as a specialist to solve a very particular problem. You just mentioned the word digital again, and my next question to you is, are there any developments currently in digital technology that really excite you? It's, I guess, a question between di- between exciting and uh, scary, scaring me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one, one of the things that I'm seeing happening is, especially with marketing, marketing is becoming much more artificial intelligence driven. So if you run ads on Facebook now, Facebook has a very complicated algorithm that takes your ad and it tries to figure out who the right people are to show your ad to because the, you know, the Facebook algorithm knows you know, who clicks on your ad, who signs up for your offer, all this kind of thing. And so the algorithm does its things to try to figure out who to show your ad to. And so I think, I think in the same way that like trading and the stock market and everything got overrun by all these high-frequency trading AI robots and things, I think marketing is going to get sort of taken over by that, that marketing is no longer going to just be about creating a good ad and doing copywriting. It's going to be who has the most powerful AI and who can test the fastest and, you know, who, whose ad is, adapts more quickly and more in, in more ways to the exact person it's being shown to. And a lot of crazy stuff like that's, I think, going to be happening over the next few years. I don't disagree that that, that those that tech kind of technology is becoming a dominant player. What's interesting, and I, I get why you feel that way, because you're you know you're in a game that could be threatened by it. But are there any aspects of this new technology that you see as wow? I could harness that and take my business to a whole other level. Oh, I think that. I think, yes, I think it's just that things are changing in terms of taking things to the next level. Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of thing where once you do get the right offer and you get the right everything figured out, you know, there's more and more ability to scale things up quickly. You know, you can go on Facebook and spend a million dollars a day if you want and show your ad to a gazillion people. And so I think that's that's really cool that that the scalability and, you know, you know, if once you get it right, you can say the Facebook algorithm find a gazillion more people that are a good fit for my offer. So, I, I I think it's a great opportunity. It's just a it's a change, and it's a things are going to be very different than they used to be. But but that's in good ways and bad. It's just more it's a, more about being different. It's it's a different thing. This is why I highly recommend the Amandis Abundance Digital. That is their primary focus. He's working with the people who are actually creating these science fiction-like changes in the world. Hmm. And his point of view, because his first book was called Abundance, The Future is Brighter Than You Think. His point of view is, guys, the mindset should be, how can we use these disruptive technologies to make our lives extraordinary? I mean, it's phenomenal. 
And when you start to see some of the stuff that's happening, it's stranger than science fiction. I don't know if people realize, but how many truck drivers do you think are in the world right now? In the whole world? I honestly have no idea. I don't either. But could you, like, it's a pretty large number, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Could could be millions. Yep. Well, I would think. How about in about five to ten years that their function will be totally obsolete. And you go, what? Because of automated trucks, self-driving trucks, which already exist. They, The first one, a big transport truck, has already made its major delivery, driving on a highway in the United States. And Costco is already putting systems in place to have all this stuff delivered and driven around by self-driving trucks. That's AI. Yep. yep. Anyway, I this stuff fascinates me. And uh, you're in a field where, yeah, it will be affected, and I'm sure you'll find ways to harness it. Where do you feel you'll be in five years, Joe? Five years? I think that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm growing this, this new business. We're helping web designers grow their businesses. So I'm really hoping to build that into a community of people. And... And help those people go into this, you know, the the sort of this new world of where things are going to be in five years. And honestly, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to look like in five years, but uh, we'll be doing something exciting, I'm sure. I guess I meant, uh, have you set a vision for specifically where you would like to be, where you see yourself? And say, I'm, in five years, this is where what I'll be earning. This is what I'll be doing, etc. I, you know, I... I I don't. I actually don't. I don't have. Um, I don't have goals out that long. I, you know, I want to grow that business and, uh, you know, as 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 much as possible and sort of become a a thought leader on some of these some of these things. And that's something I'm working towards. Um, but I only have goals out to uh, out to the end of the year, and I need to come up with some new ones for for next year. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like I feel like so many things have changed so quickly that um, I, I've. You know that that one year goal has been a pretty has been pretty uh, has worked pretty well for me. And it's been hard for me to to know five years out. Listen, it's certainly good because many people don't even have a ten minute goal. So <laughs> so that's really really good. If there was one piece of advice that you would give to a budding entrepreneur, what would it be? I would say just get started, you know, start any, you know, basically start any business and get out there and start learning about entrepreneurship. And most likely that first business you start's not going to be the, not going to be the one, or you're going to have to pivot or this or that, but, um, you don't want to wait for the perfect idea or wait till you know everything. You just want to get into entrepreneurship and start learning. Mm. I love it. One, um, I studied for a while with, um, Alex Mendoza, and he had a wonderful expression, mm-hmm. don't let perfect become the enemy of good. Yep, absolutely. You know, what is your favorite book? One of the books that I always recommend to people um, is Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz. Mm, I love it. Yeah. Excellent book. And a, a new one I'm reading recently that's really helping on the um, sort of scaling and operation side is a book called... Um, the four disciplines of execution. I've heard and, of that. Yeah. And I, I don't know who wrote it off the top of my head, but it's really good 
very tangible. Now that you have all this knowledge, here's how you actually execute and have a business that executes and gets things done. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm really I'm getting a lot out of that. I'm definitely going to be looking that one up. What about a favorite quote? Favorite quote. Uh, you know what? I, I love the quote from Jordan Belfort that, you know, the, and I remember the exact words here, but that the, the only thing stopping you from, from getting what you want is the BS story that you keep telling yourself as to why you can't have it. Well, you, you, you know that I love that. How do you spell his name? Belford, B-E-L? B-E-L-F-O-R-T, I believe. It's the, the, the Wolf of Wall Street, the guy the Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, about. yeah, 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 yeah. I just love that quote. I used to, for, for a long time, think it was sort of just like a platitude, like, oh, that sounds nice, it's motivational. But really, there's so much stuff that there's so many times in, in, in life and in business where, you know, you just tell yourself this made-up thing. Nobody will pay these high prices. Nobody wants this, blah, blah, blah. And it's all made up. If you just go out and try to sell it, people would buy it. And it's, it's so true. Man, when you say it's all made up, People don't even begin to understand how profound that is. It's so true. There's so much made up that we just build our lives on. And that's why I got a show, I have a show called Change Your Story, Change Your Life. How can yep. people contact you, Joe? Yeah, absolutely. So on the, uh, on the web design uh, digital agency side, the, the website there is kasherbawebdesign.com. And on the... Um, on the other side, if you're a freelancer or an agency owner um, and are looking to learn more about growing your business, uh, you can go to joekasherba.com. You you should spell – so Joe Kasherba, yeah. right? Joe yep. Kasherba. It's K-A-S-H-U-R-B-A, joekasherba.com. Beautiful. Any final thoughts, Joe? I would – you know – Go out there, take some action, learn from it, and, and keep going. I want to thank you, man. It's been um, insightful, and for me, it's been a lot of fun talking to you today. This has been great. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. I. This is one of the joys of my day. Thank you once again, storytellers, for spending time with me and Joe Kasurba today. Please pay this show forward. Let people know that they can hear it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at changeyourstorypodcast.com. At that website, you will find a free downloadable ebook that I have created for you called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. Once again, Today we were talking about some exciting books, and the, the, uh, the author, Maxwell Maltz, came up. He has written one of the most profound and life-changing books of the 20th century, Psycho-Cybernetics. You really deserve to have this book. Don't hesitate to get a copy, either on Kindle, Amazon, your favorite bookstore, or... Take advantage of the offer from our sponsor, Audible. Go there to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. Download the audiobook or any other one that you want, choosing from more than 120,000 titles. 
Download it absolutely free and get an entire month free of all of Audible's service. An exciting thing that I found about talking to Joe was his mindset shift that made him so successful. And I can be summarized in this phrase, you get what you tolerate. If you value yourself very little, you will put a low value on the money that you earn, what you deserve to earn, how people treat you, the kinds of experiences you can or cannot enjoy in life, etc. As you saw with Joe, he went from earning very, very little to earning an enormous amount of money for doing the same kind of work. When he changed his attitude toward what he was worth and what he deserved. This is certainly something that everyone can benefit from examining in their lives. I'm working on it all the time. How can you increase your value to others? And importantly, how can you increase your value to yourself in your own eyes? Begin to really explore that in the next few weeks. And to help you, ask, how can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.